Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. This episode is sponsored by the Retro Video Store Podcast. The Retro Video Store Podcast reviews the classic and not-so-classic movies of the VHS era. Hosts Eric and Neil try to capture the feelings of renting a movie off of the shelves of a mom-and-pop video store or the thrill of catching a scary movie on cable late at night with your friends. Everything from classics like Poltergeist to cult favorites like The Beastmaster are covered. Pop some popcorn and settle in for a humorous blast of nostalgia. The Retro Video Store Podcast. You can catch the Retro Video Store on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and most major podcast providers. There were two more murders 15 miles well, away. Arrived, the they found the telephone and electricity line described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religion. Morning. Sometimes, even after a killer is sent to prison, people remain doubtful of their guilt. On September 3, 1931, a man was born who would end up serving out the rest of his days in prison after he admitted to being the Boston Strangler, a man who confessed to murders that many believe he didn't commit. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. On June 14, 1962, police received a call after Eurus Slusser found his 56-year-old mother, Anna Elsa, dead in her Boston apartment. She had been sexually assaulted by an unknown object and strangled with the belt of her bathrobe. There were no signs of forced entry. Before the police could find her murderer, they found a new victim, and another, and another. That's because Anna's murder was the first in what would be 13 murders that took place all around the Boston area between June of 1962 and January of 1964. Women like Mary Mullen, 85, who died of a heart attack after being attacked. She was found on June 28, 1962. Nina Frances Nichols, 68, and Helen Elizabeth Blake, 65, who were sexually assaulted and strangled with nylon stockings. Helen suffered from lacerations to her vagina and anus. 
Both were found on June 30th, 1962, one in Lynn, Massachusetts, and the other in Boston. Ida Odes Erga, 75, who was sexually assaulted and strangled, her nightgown ripped open to expose her body. She was found on August 19, 1962. Two days later, Jane Buckley Sullivan, 67, was found in her home not far from where Ida lived. She had been murdered a week before and strangled with her own nylons. Sophia Clark, who was only 20 years old, was found on December 5, 1962. She was a black student who was very cautious about her safety. It was a shock when she was found dead just a few blocks from where the first victim lived. Like the other victims, there was no sign of forced entry, and she had been sexually assaulted before strangulation. However, at her crime scene, police were able to recover semen for the first time. It was one of the first big breaks in their case. At the end of December came the discovery of Patricia Ann Bollock Bissett, 23, who lived where two other victims did and was discovered by her boss after she failed to turn up for work. Her body had been assaulted and strangled by her own stockings. Marianne Brown, 69, was found on March 6, 1963, in Lawrence, Massachusetts. And Beverly Sammons, 25, found dead on May 6, 1963, just nine days before her 26th birthday in her home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Her hands were bound behind her back, her scarves, a nylon stocking, and two handkerchiefs tied around her neck, and a piece of cloth over her mouth, hiding a second piece that had been stuffed into her throat. She had been stabbed 22 times, 18 of which were in the shape of a bullseye right on her breast. The deviation from strangulation was believed to be because of her strong throat muscles from a lifetime of singing. He was forced to resort to a knife. By this time, the media was in a frenzy about the murderer they had dubbed the Boston Strangler. They encouraged women to purchase tear gas, new locks, and dud bolts, and not let anyone into their apartment that they did not know personally. They believed that the strangler was posing as a maintenance worker or something similar, gaining trust and entry into these women's home. And because the murders were taking place in several cities, jurisdictional oversight made his capture even more difficult. The Massachusetts Attorney General not only helped to coordinate several forces, but he enlisted the help of parapsychologists who, to much controversy, claimed that these murders were all the work of a single man. Many had believed that this must be multiple killers, and his assumptions otherwise caused many issues within the case. On September 8, 1963, the body of 58-year-old Marie Evelina Corbin was found dead in her home in Salem. She was lying nude on her bed, her underwear stuffed into her mouth. Semen was found at her scene, as well as on lipstick stains and in her mouth. Joanne Marie Graf, 22, was found on November 23, 1963, and several witnesses described her potential attacker as a man who offered to paint her neighbor's apartment just a few days before. It seemed that, with each murder, a small piece of evidence was revealed, but they seemed no closer to capturing the strangler. On January 4, 1964, the strangler's youngest victim was found dead in her Boston apartment, and hers was the most gruesome scene. 19-year-old Mary Ann Sullivan's roommate discovered her sitting in her bed, back up against the headboard. She had been strangled with a stocking and sexually assaulted with a broom handle. Wedged between her feet was a New Year's card. In the fall of that same year, in addition to the Strangler murders, police were trying to solve a series of rapes committed by a man dubbed the Measuring Man. 
And on October 27, 1964, the measuring man attacked another victim. He entered her home pretending to be a detective, tied her up, raped her, and then left saying, I'm sorry, as he went. With the help of her description, they were able to identify a man named Albert DeSalvo. And when his photo was published, many came forward saying he was their assailant. It appeared that, while they were having no luck catching the strangler, at least the measuring man was off the streets. Albert DeSalvo was born on September 3, 1931, in Chelsea, Massachusetts, to an alcoholic father who once knocked all of his wife's teeth out and broke her fingers one by one in front of his children. Albert was known to torture animals and was arrested for the first time when he was just 12 years old. So it really wasn't hard to believe that this man grew up to be a violent offender. But then, while speaking with a fellow inmate named George Nasser, he began confessing to much more than the rapes. According to Albert, he was the Boston Strangler. George, of course, immediately went to his attorney with the information. While Albert did describe some of the scenes in vivid detail, there were also many inconsistencies. And there was no physical evidence that substantiated his claims. Because of this, he was only charged and tried for the rapes during which his lawyer brought up the confession as a part of his client's history to aid with an insanity defense. It was ruled inadmissible by the judge. He was sentenced to life in prison in 1967. In February of that year, he and two other inmates escaped from the state hospital he was being housed in, triggering a full-scale manhunt. In his bunk was a note stating that he had escaped to focus attention on the conditions of the hospital he gave himself up the next day and was transferred to a maximum security prison. Six years later, on November 25, 1973, Albert DeSalvo was found stabbed to death in the prison infirmary. Over the years, experts have doubted that he was the Boston Strangler. Many believe the cases weren't even related, that the pattern differed too much from case to case. And those who knew him claimed he was very clever, smooth, and a compulsive confessor who desperately needed attention. A former inmate claimed he heard another convict coaching Albert to give him the details about the crime. On July 11, 2013, the Boston Police Department released information stating that the DNA found at Mary Sullivan's scene matched Albert DeSalvo. And while this means he was responsible for her death, there is no way of knowing if this means he was connected to the other 12 victims. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to what terrible thing happened on September 4th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. 
New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. 